Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julia Heinle. I'm the publishing assistant at NIAS Press and a master's student of political science at the University of Copenhagen. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Anuska Dirks and Jean-Francois Rousseau, who, together with Sarah Turner, are the editors of our recent NIAS Press book, Fragrant Frontier, Global Spice Entanglements from the Sino-Vietnamese Uplands, that came out in May 2022 and is available worldwide. Anuska Dirks is an associate professor and departmental co-director at the University of Zurich. She's a social anthropologist interested in social transformation processes in Southeast Asia, in particular in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand. Her research focuses on migration, labor, gender, as well as the social lives of things, and interrogates discourses of development and innovation. Jean-Francois Rousseau is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. He is a development geographer with research focusing on the relationships between agrarian change, infrastructure development, especially hydropower dams and sand mining, and ethnic minority livelihood diversification in southwest China. Welcome, Anuska and Jean-Francois. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Now, to kick things off, your book focuses on three spices, star anise, black cardamom, and cinnamon, and looks at their commodity chains and entanglements in the Sino-Vietnamese uplands. Why did you settle with these three spices and that region? Whomever would like to go first can start. Shall I start? Yes. So why did we settle on these three spices, cardamom, cinnamon, and star anise? First of all, because these are three spices that are grown in northern Vietnam and across the border in China. They are grown mostly by ethnic minority people. I look at the Vietnamese side by the Hmong and Lao Cai cultivating cardamom. The Yao and Ian Bai are cultivating mostly cinnamon or cassia, as it is also called. And the Thai and Nguyen and Black Sona growing mostly star anise. And these are important spices for them, a part of their livelihoods. But also in other ways, they're important. I mean, if I look at Vietnam in more general, I mean, to make pho, the broth, the pho, you need these three spices. So they come together in the soup, basically. And the cultivating and the trade of these spices have grown rapidly during the past decades, even though these three spices have very different positions on the global market. I don't know, Jean-Francois, if you want to maybe add something to that. Yeah, no. well, I would add that there were first practical reasons, as is often the case for many research, both Sarah Turner, who's editing the book with us, and Nishka and myself, or people that we work with, had been already doing research in plantations of either cassia, black cardamom, or star anise. So we already owned some expertise on these different crops. And adding to what Nishka just said, I think that these three commodities in their own ways have also been to very important, let's say, market cycles 
and boom and what we discuss as boom and bust cycles or patterns in their own way. As we explained, Cardamom was exposed to extreme weather events. Taranese has boom in the onset of the avian and swine flu as it used to be utilized for the manufacturing of some antiretroviral drug. And cinnamon growers, at least on the Chinese side, have also coped with little and inappropriate agrarian training involving that they actually lost the plantations that they were entitled to grow by the government. So there is also this connection between the tree crops where plantations and market have expanded very rapidly and in some instances all face also very important hurdles and circumstances that we probe in the book. Very interesting. You mentioned that it tied to your research, but how did it unfold in the end that there is actually a book that we can see now that we can hold in our hands and yeah, trace your insights in that? Well, I can maybe go first here. First, we have to acknowledge that first editor, Sarah Turner, was a key connection between uh, different work that has been going on either on both sides of the Sino-Vietnamese border. So Sarah has actively taken the lead in that regard. This book also stems from conference that Anuska, Sarah and myself attended at the European Association of Agricultural Economists mm-hmm. in spring 2019, which looks like a world ago as of today. But still, the panel, I think this is what really convinced us that we had accumulated and amassed uh, and our collaborators quite a fair amount of empirical material that we were in the process of analyzing and that there was probably definitely enough material for a relevant book. We have altogether a collection of eight chapters that involve both emergent as well as established scholars, both from the West and from the countries of focus. I'd like to take a few seconds just to name the individuals that were involved in the drafting of the different chapters, namely between us three, Patrick Slack, Niu Tui Han, Xu Yixiang, Jennifer Langill, Lord Jending, Michelle Key, Celia Zuberek, and also Tango Mahanti. And as we're making acknowledgement, it was great working with the people at Niespras, and specifically Gerald Jackson has been a pleasure to work with. Great editor, funny editor as well. We've also had editing assistance from Monika Jadojanovsky and Don Wagner. Maybe also thanks to both Jonathan Rigg and Janet Sturgeon kindly wrote the back cover of the book. Mm -hmm. In what way would you describe, you said you had a lot of material, more specifically in what way it adds sort of to the field of research or the field of anthropology in general? I guess it's not just anthropology. I mean, we have geographers and we have actually people of different backgrounds. And maybe that's one of the strengths of the book as well, that we have contributors from different backgrounds and different stages of their careers. And then working on spices in Vietnam and China is allowing us also to trace these spice chains across the board and even beyond what we call the fragrant frontier. And I think what is special, it's a book about spices, and spices are fascinating, fascinating substances. They're, they're very important because they flavor our foods. They're also used in medicine, cosmetics, and in other consumer goods. But they stand for so much more. I mean, they've been bestowed magical qualities. They've been sources of wealth and catalysts for discovery. They connect different regions of the world, although their origins are very often mystified. And there is quite some research on spices, on spice trades. But a lot of this is historical research, and it's not so much on the contemporary trade or contemporary change. And basically, they all have spices in our kitchen cabinets, but we know quite little about where these come from and the lives and the livelihoods of those who are cultivating spice. And that is what this book seeks to address. And as we noted before, these 
growing spaces in this Braben Fonte has a long history. It's during the past decade, there has been intensification of spice production and also in connection with the global markets. Pretty much all of the chapters are pretty grounded into empirical data that the collaborators have amassed in the field. I think that these are important in demonstrating how ethnic minority livelihoods have been proactive and have been adapting or negotiating with market and market upheavals and state projects for them to grow specific crops in specific areas in certain times and then the opposite to stop growing or to stop expanding. And I think that the book overcomes how the growers are first way more knowledgeable about their circumstances, where they grow their crop, about the, the actual agrarian circumstances where they evolve, and that they've also been way more proactive in playing the market than official state discourses in either Vietnam or China want to portray. The official state discourses in these settings tends to depict ethnic minorities as not well equipped to address these market circumstances as actors that should be following the predicaments from the state for their own good. What we demonstrate is that in some cases they did actually follow these predicaments, but in other instances they didn't. And often than not, their decisions end up being the good ones as soon as their livelihoods are concerned. Mm -hmm. Their livelihoods obviously differ very much. Can it be generalized in what way their livelihoods are influenced or impacted by the spice trade throughout the times? One thing that the book shows also that the cultivation of spices has provided ethnic minority farmers with the opportunity also to earn cash. And they need this cash also for agricultural inputs, for school fees or upgrading of the houses. So there is definitely something that they have been able to market on basically as Jean-François was just saying. On the other hand, that's also what we show very well. The farmers are very much dependent on various factors that they cannot control. And these relate to the volatility of markets that affect prices. And it was most obvious in the case of star anise, for example, Jean-François also mentioned it already. Because star anise contains this element cyclic acids, which is a principal component for the production of Tamiflu, this anti-influenza drug, and with the avian flu and later the swine flu epidemics in the mid-2000s, there was a high demand for this drug and also for this element, obviously. Farms would fetch high prices, but it's very short-lived. And by now, this component, chicken acid, is produced via chemical synthesis. And it shows already how what happens in the pharma labs, in this case in Switzerland, affects prices and also livelihoods of the minority farmers in upland Vietnam and China. So these are factors that they cannot control. A lot of things, what, what uh, Jean-François just mentioned, is, of course, are these, these extreme weather events that have had a major impact, in particular, on the cultivation of cardamom. Just expanding a little bit more on this side is that what we have uncovered working with peasants whose plantation were, were devastated, literally devastated by extreme weather events in the highland forests mainly from the mid-2010 onwards, is that we came up with conclusions that were kind of counterintuitive, where cardamom has been booming in southwest China for a few decades. And this is one of the commodities that has allowed some individuals who embarked the cardamom bandwagon in due time to get pretty rich. Black cardamom has become one of the very lucrative opportunities or very important opportunities for making important financial income in that specific area. 
And as a result, those who had the social and financial capital to start expanding their cardamom plantations at the onset of the cardamom boom have emerged as financial elites within the villages. And what we have also uncovered is that obviously these individuals were among those whose livelihoods were more centered on black cardamom. And obviously these are also individuals who face very important hurdles overnight because their main livelihood contributing activity overnight has crumbled. And one of the characteristics of the products or the communities that we address in the book is that these tend to yield spices period that ranges between a few years after the crops are being planted up to almost a decade. So there has been tremendous challenges for the cardamom growers to realign their livelihoods in a context where cardamom cultivation is increasingly risky as these extreme weather events have become more and more frequent and where there has dimension of a gamble because uh, if you are to make an agrarian decision that will potentially allow you to recover your livelihood in a few years times in a context where the conditions have been degrading over these last few years these individuals whose livelihoods were more centered on cardamom in that regard were facing greater challenges than those who potentially have made less financial income from cardamom but who still had maintained more diverse livelihood in that regard. Mm. How are the governments of Vietnam and China influencing that ice trade? Can the state involvement be seen as quite intense? So the governments, I mean, states like Vietnam and China, the government is always involved. Um, the question is, of course, how impactful it is. I mean, there are different ways, of course, in issues of land access, and there are several programs also to develop the countryside in the whole of Vietnam, for example. But maybe some projects or programs that were really impactful or that we describe also in the book are those related in Vietnam, at least in the Regreening the Bear Hills program in the 1990s. So it's a state-initiated reforestation program through which farmers also in these upland areas received seedlings to grow trees. And in Ianbai, for example, farmers told us they got the seedlings for cinnamon trees. Other farms who got other trees, they realized soon that actually these trees make green, but they have no economic value. And it's different for cinnamon. So they also changed to growing cinnamon. So this is how there was a steady expansion of hills with, cinnamon, with cassia trees that basically actively promoted by the states. And not yeah. in the Vietnamese case, is the Geographical Indication Program. So that's also a program initiated by the states and supported by development organizations in order to counter price fluctuations and hopefully to protect farmers against these volatile markets. So we have, in the case of Black Southern Star and this, they got a geographical indication in 2007, Van Ian Cassia in 2010. There we've seen also, that's also described in the book, certain problems also, and problems related to the area that is basically designated for these geographical indications and those farmers cultivating outside of this designated area can officially not claim the geographical indication. But even more problematic is that we found that most farmers don't even know about this geographical indication. Also, the traders don't even know it and don't see the, the benefits of it. So we have so far at least not seen how geographical indication programs facilitate these really improvements to local livelihoods. I'd argue that on the Chinese side, the circumstances are somewhat similar to what Anushka was just describing. In many places or in many instances, the state was actively involved when it came to 
encouraging agrarian change and driving or promoting the expansion of certain spice crops in specific area. An example is that of of cinnamon in the border area where China and Vietnam meet, where cinnamon plantation was actively encouraged at some point in the context of a reforestation initiative and where it was considered that cinnamon could meet both reforestation and agrarian livelihoods objectives. But oftentimes the problem is that policy does shift faster than the actual time coming back to the fact that these crops are perennial crops or tree crops. The policies tend to to shift faster than the actual time it takes to yield the results. And in that specific cinnamon example, the policy shift uh, that was involved is that by the time that the cinnamon trees were ready to be harvested, the forest protection policies had now taken precedence over the rural livelihoods, and the peasants were not allowed to harvest their cinnamon trees by then, because it was then considered that cinnamon harvested would potentially damage trees and pose threat to the forest reforestation and greening projects. So these are circumstances that the state, in many instances, has been very active in driving agrarian changes that would lead to the expansion, for instance, of spice crops. But in the same time, once these policy objectives had been met and once X amount of actors had been planted, oftentimes the policy would change and the peasants or the growers would not necessarily benefit from follow-up support from the state so that they could get the most benefits at every step along the way. And still on the China side, another aspect could raise is that, as Anushka alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, Spices, in some ways, can be argued to remain trivial. They're important, they're fascinating. But from the state's point of view, spices occupy a small market and they have nothing to do with food security imperatives, which the Chinese government takes very seriously. And in that regard, the spice crops that we've been looking at are not controlled in a manner that is as strict as other oil crops or grain would be, for instance. Mm -hmm. So this does open the door for all sorts of market manipulation by important actors, also potentially to food safety threat. One story we heard from Darny Strader is that they used to use chemicals to make their product look nicer without consideration to the actual safety of these actual products. And in that specific case, it turned out that it was not the state or the authorities that convinced the brokers to stop using these products, but actually more important commodity chain actors who were servicing Western markets who had more important list of regulations that they had to apply. And these were convincing in making sure that these products would not be used anymore to make look star anise redder or nicer. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Now, zooming maybe a bit more out of the conversation. Part of your project involves visual story maps on the commodity chains and entanglements of these three spices. Can you tell us a bit more about how it came into being and maybe also what interested people then after listening to this episode can look forward to? First, I think in order for people and listeners to be able to access this link, one of the opportunities is to actually download the Fragrant Frontier book because this turns out to be an open access document where people can skim and go through the chapters. And maybe a good teaser to digging into the book is to actually take a look 
add the story maps that were produced. These were produced as a component from a research project that our collaborator, Sarah Turner. The maps were produced by Patrick Slack and Michelle Key. And basically, it's a visual representation of some of the findings that, that our respective research on these individual crops have generated. It's produced in a very, I would argue, appealing and attracting manner that walks us through the plantations where these crops are being grown. And that also allows us to travel along some of the commodity chains that we have probed in more details in the chapters. I guess the idea for us was to make this research really accessible in multiple ways. As Jean-François just said, it is an open access book funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. So it can be read by anyone basically all over the world. The story maps are these very attractive virtual illustrations of these commodity chains and the entanglements of these different actors in the chains. And then there is another part of what I would call this kind of multimedia approach to the research on these spices is that we will soon release uh, two very short films, one about starless and one about cinnamon, to provide really more visual images of how the spices are grown and harvested and traded to really get a better idea of what the area looks like, what these trees look like, what people involved in the cultivation and processing trading spices, what they look like. Together also with the website that Sarah Turner has set up, is a different way of also presenting the research that we have conducted over the decade or so. Yeah, hopefully these individual elements will allow for readers to, to just look at the spice cup. I mean, we all have a spice drawer or cupboard somewhere, which in my case is pretty messy. And to just look at these different products uh, with a different eye, to understand that these come up with a long history of travel, a long history of social interactions between different individuals that face different challenges in this commodity chain. So, so I think that these are all individual media that allow to illustrate and to dig these stories in greater detail. <laughs> That's super exciting. I'll definitely make sure to post the link to the website, but also to the open access book in the show notes. So everyone will be able to, to have a look there. Now, unfortunately, we're also already very close to the end. So as a roundup, I'd like to ask both of you whether you have any exciting upcoming projects in mind that you'd like to share with us or where would there be an opportunity for listeners to follow your research? So I'm working at the moment at several research projects. One is on innovation in Vietnam and particularly in relation to energy and another one on heritage and development in Vietnam. And I'm still working on a book. It's a longer process on, about the social life of a cooking fuel. So it's a coal-based fuel that has now been banned. And I'm looking at the trajectory, the career of this cooking fuel in Vietnam. So it tells the story of the making of this cooking fuel and how it relates to illegal coal sourcing practices, to increasing energy needs and environmental degradation, but also the insection of the economy and religious beliefs, gender and architecture in a way, using one object to explore transformations and social inequalities in post-reform Vietnam. Information about myself can be found in the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa. And I'm currently in a transition where I'm moving between two projects, which excites me. 
and is also freaking me out. But the upcoming research agenda, which I'm currently developing with colleagues, both at the University of Ottawa and beyond, is to look at uh, sand, which happens to be one of the most, not the most, intensively utilized natural resource over there, and one about which there is surprisingly little conceptualization as of today. So we are to build research initiatives where we want to probe mainly on the actual livelihood implications of us digging way too much sands than what rivers can naturally regenerate. Also look at the, the various labor conditions along sand industry, which ranges from highly mechanized exploitations in some places to very uh, unmechanized in other areas. So we want to decipher this broad labor relations along the sand commodity chains and also trying to figure out why there is so little governance about sand, whereas other resources and commodities are being governed by treaties or certifications and such instruments. None of this exists for sand at the moment, and we want to probe the circumstances explaining that why even though sand is used so intensively, has been out of the governance radar as of today. Okay. I hear loads of potential books in the pipeline, so that's very exciting. Thank you very much, both Anuska and Jean-François, for joining me today. I think this is the end for our small conversation. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I'm Julia Heinle. I'm talking to Anuska Derricks and Jean-François Rousseau, who together with Sarah Turner, our editors of the recent Nias Press book, Fragrant Frontier, Global Spice Entanglements from the Sino-Vietnamese Upland. The book is available as an open access on our website and can also be ordered in our web store. Thank you for today. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.